longing for the ancient way. We picked that title years and years ago when um, there was a big conference on Dogen Zinji. And it was entitled Longing for the Ancient Way, and I thought that was <clears throat> a nice title. But it means the ancient way that, in a way, we are compelled to walk on this old path, this path that is always present, this path that leads to liberation. And right this moment, we are walking as we sit. Because this path is a path of awareness. It's a path of attention. It's following and returning to what is present and allowing what is present to open up and reveal itself to us. And it begins with our body. Now, Kisei's talks are elegant and inspiring, but I'm going to be very prosaic today and just talk about some mechanics. And if you've heard some of this a dozen times, yeah, let it go through. On the other hand, please reflect carefully and see whether some of these comments reply to you. So initially, anchoring on our body is the best tool to manage the wandering mind, the elephant mind, the wild horse mind, the mind that is just constantly, constantly swirling around and considering this, considering that, and thinking about the future, and thinking about the past, and thinking about he said, she said, they said. It is the first and most important foundation of practice is to gain some inside awareness, control, appreciation, space, from the wandering mind. Because without that, without that kind of concentration, nothing else is possible. And we gain freedom from the wandering mind, from being at its mercy, through the practice of concentration. And there is no best practice. Here people come in all the time and saying, well, that didn't work so well, I decided to try this. This didn't work so well, I decided to try that. And they keep hopping around, hoping to find a practice which is easier, more effective by their criterion. But all practices, all these, all practices require mindfulness and concentration. And all practices are essentially the same, especially as we are all beginners on the path because we're always dealing with our own mind. And whether we're doing listening practice, or we're doing koan practice, or we're doing you know, different kinds of body practices, or whether, you know, it's still our mind we're working with. Now, this body, we call this body, has got many different dimensions to it. And the simplest, the reason I often talk about this, the simplest, most concrete way is to feel our hands. Or perhaps the space in the top of the lips. These are tools. 
I'm not suggesting everybody now change and feel your hands as a practice. If you're doing that, it's a great practice. It's concrete, it's present. You can anchor your awareness in it. It doesn't, doesn't wiggle around, slip away so, well, so much. So every practice, especially when we are all beginning on this path, is a practice of anchoring, a practice of bringing the scattered mind to a simple mind, to one mind, to no mind. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about breath practice. So if you've heard this over and over again, just do what you do with it. On the other hand, it might be helpful to some. First off, air has no nerves in it. Breath practice is not about feeling air. Breath practice is about the sensations of the body as it moves, or perhaps the sensations of the nose as it changes temperature. But breath practice is not about air. It's about the movement of the body, the rhythmic, ongoing, ever-present movement of the body. And it is good, especially when we're having, and our mind is fragmented, to figure out or to have some place in the body that we regard as the anchor point. So it could be the dhara, the classic one, the lower belly, three finger, four fingertips below the navel. Or it could be the chest, or it could be the movement of the chest or the abdomen. Or the but breath is nothing but the movement of the body, and the whole body is moving. If you look carefully, you'll see the back moves, and the pelvis moves, and the head moves, and the shoulders move, and the arms move, and even the legs move more and more subtly, of course. So when we are practicing with breath, we have to be clear what we're actually paying attention to. Again, air has no nerves in it. So usually people are not paying attention to the kinesthetic experience of air, because we don't even have those receptors in the lungs. So the anchoring is the first place. Now, it's good to have a solid place of anchoring, and often I suggest do one hand, and then do the other hand, and then do feel both hands at the same time, or you're feeling the hara, and you feel the chest, and you feel the breath, movement of the chest, and the movement of the belly at the same time. And then you gradually include, without losing track of, the, of your primary anchor, without losing track of the hands, you have hands, hara, breath, head, shoulders, whatever. So it becomes more and more inclusive. Not, there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and there's this. So to have, to know what the anchor is for you, 
And then to not lose track of that anchor, and there are different ways of aware, being aware of that, but to gradually have an inclusive state of mind. So that, not so that, the outcome when we are managing thought and we are anchored in the movement of the body, however we do that, then we can rest lightly in awareness of the whole body. And resting lightly in the awareness of the whole body, some people just get that right away, and some people it takes a long time to really appreciate what that means. The path can be arduous, and it's arduous because it takes energy and stamina to rein in this wild horse of a mind. And the practice is not fighting our mind, but returning with determination to the anchors that we have until the anchor becomes more interesting, more part of our core experience than the wandering, wandering random thoughts that float through. So to come and to rest in the whole body or any part of the body, to rest with awareness without thought or without a preponderance of thought is part of silent illumination, part of just sitting, part of stillness, part of shikantaza. Now, resting in the whole body is about it's important to have a sense of relaxation. Because if we're not relaxed, then we're fighting against ourselves. We start tensing up our shoulders, we start tensing up our lower back, and we're tensing against our own experience. So it's important as we anchor our awareness and as we begin to rein in or turn aside from the infinite stream of wandering thoughts, that we rest in the body with a middle way, as the Buddha says. Not too tight and not too loose. Not hyper alert like we are when we're afraid and not half asleep. So relax does not mean limp and flaccid and drowsy. Some people say, I've got to relax, immediately they slump. And thinking relaxation is a, being a, a pool of jelly. To be relaxed yet fully present. So this is all the same practice. We're anchoring our mind, begin to turn away from thought, becoming increasingly aware of the present moment, becoming increasingly have an increasive view, which happens naturally in a way. And then we are resting in awake awareness. Now, one of the ways that we can kind of check ourselves, am I, am I zoned out, 
or am I really truly awake, is by looking at our mudra. Now, in the, the classic mudra is the cosmic mudra. Left hand over right, thumbs lightly touching. Classic mudra held around the hara. There are slightly different variations of it. But the one that's most useful, I've found over the many years of trying different things, is having the thumbs lightly touching. Now, when we are alert and present and conscious, the thumbs are there. There's a, a nice firmness about the mudra. When we go unconscious, everything just drops. We forget. We're no longer present. And so you'll see people just with their hands just gone, forgotten. In a negative way, because they're asleep. So one of the barometers for yourself to just say, am I really a present here? Is the mudra. And of course, the tone of the posture. We tend to not, you know, we're kind of a very easygoing sangha. So people sit however they want to sit with their hands. But, but that, is the, that is the feedback. And you can always tell when you're looking somebody with their mudra, you can always tell their approximate state of mind. Some people don't want that to be seen, but that's another matter. Okay, now, back to, back to this fundamental practice. Again, there is no better practice. I'm just trying to give you some, some potential views, some potential depths or, or ways that it might evolve. Okay, so, the ordinary view, ordinary person's view, ordinary mind view, is that there's this thing, you know, this lump called the body. And that lump has got some breath that's moving in and out of it. And then we think of my meditation is to keep the lump in mind at all times. You know? But it doesn't work, as we all know. We keep trying to, to you know, keep the lump in its various parts. And they keep slipping away. They slip away. We keep trying to hold on to the breath, but it slips away. We can't actually hold on to anything because everything is slipping away. But this particular tool has got to be larger than the instant of quivering of particular muscles or particular motion. So as we begin to manage the stability and enter the stability of practice with a mind that is settled, you know, scattered mind, simple mind, one mind, no mind, as we become down to a, a more and more simple mind and our awareness becomes larger and more inclusive, then with a relaxed awareness, we're aware of the whole container, the whole container. <coughs> and the whole container begins to reveal itself as kind of quivering, shimmering, 
We don't have to say, I'm now going to see the shimmering nature of the energetic phenomena. You know, that's more random thoughts. And the more random thoughts, the less obvious these more subtle things are. So as we are sitting, and the mind is calm, it's really important the mind has got to be calm, then things reveal themselves to our awareness. Now, of course, we all know the trap. You know, we're sitting there and finally the mind begins to settle down and we have a moment of calmness and then the mind starts saying, oh, I'm finally calm now, oh, I'm finally calm, I finally got it, you know, just a few more minutes I'll be awakened. awakened. You know, and the mind starts on this spiral of random thoughts. So random thoughts can be random thoughts about the, the nature of mind and random thoughts about concentration and dharma and, you know, your future lives and anything is a random thought. It doesn't have to be just about trivial subjects. Of course, from this vantage point, they all are. So as we practice, it's also important to learn to rest in experience, which is changing, and to tolerate with the our experience, to have some satisfaction. And then to notice as soon as the evaluative mind comes in and starts judging and criticizing and thinking I'm making progress, I'm not making progress, you know, I'm regressing, I've got too many random thoughts, you know, I can't see the deeper aspects of practice, so I'm really a hopeless failure, oh, I've got to practice more. That's all random thought. None of it's helpful. None of it. And somehow, because of our backgrounds, our education, our whatever, we somehow place, we somehow feel that all these judgments and this swirl of opinion is somehow useful. It's not. If you want to write a paper, if you want to do statistics, if you want to have a particular craft, of course, we need to use every bit of our acute mind. But for this intimate practice, at this place, that acute mind is just random thoughts. Anything is just random thoughts. So we come back, and we come back to the direct, vivid experience, or even the direct, fuzzy experience, or even the direct, numb experience of the body, whatever your anchor is. And then to learn, as we practice, something happens and the mind doesn't just go <laughs> leap on it and grab it and try to say, ooh, I want that one. Give me, give me, how did I get there? I'll, I'll, I'll do it again. And then we're off. We have to, to not believe the mind. So as our sense, as we're not believing the mind, as our sense of the mind, or as our mind is less in control, takes a less prominent part, and we're anchored in the direct experience, we can begin to feel lighter, more space, less dense. The tingling, aliveness that Kisei was talking about. We can't make it happen. It's already right there. But we just don't see it because we're so embroiled in the 
opinions and judgments. So to, to begin to rest in the body, not too tight, not too loose, not hypervigilant, but to rest with satisfaction and presence in the experience of the body, in this case, breathing. Now, as we begin to feel one with ourselves, because the first place of practice is we, can, we have to drop the battle in our own heart, with our own heart. The gross part of the battle is, you know, we have a tight neck and we start tensing up and we try to avoid it or our legs are tight and we start you know, tensing up and trying to get away from it. But we have learned to not really inhabit our body. And the first place of practice is to inhabit the whole body from the inside. All those places that we aren't comfortable with, that we cut off, that we would rather not see or feel. Because until we begin inhabiting our own body and see it's all one seamless whole, unfragmented, unbroken, we can't actually see the next step. So as our mind becomes calm, and as our mind is present, as the body begins to reveal what's there below the surface after the mind is calm, what what reveals itself, and we see the flickering, changing nature, we begin to see directly for ourselves the truth of emptiness and impermanence in our body. We can see it because as anything, as I mentioned earlier, we pay attention to flickers, goes in and out. We're aware, we're not aware, we're aware, we're not aware. It comes out of nowhere, it goes nowhere. And we begin to see that the body is not a lump. And the world is not a lump. That when our mind is distracted, the lump is still there. But rather, when our mind is distracted, the lump disappears. And the only thing that we have is constancy of memory. With attention, things come alive. With attention, things are present. Without attention, we don't know whether they exist or don't exist. So we're sitting in the body. As the body as the whole body, and we begin to realize the body's boundaries are not so fixed as the mind likes to think. The shape that we're in, from the, the shape of our body from the inside, from the experientially, is very different than the shape that we see when we look in the mirror. And as we sit, 
with the mind quiet and we sit present with <clears throat> awareness and we begin to see the flickering nature of things, how things arise, exist and disappear just constantly. And we begin to touch impermanence, to really touch a direct experience of impermanence in our own body. Everything does that. And so when we're in pain, and you know, as you know, pain and pleasure, they, they're inevitable, they come, it doesn't matter whether you're in session or not in session, you've got discomfort and you've got comfort, and they just keep alternating back and forth, just like high and low and in and out, just keep back, coming back and forth. If you've got a body, it's going to hurt, it's also going to feel pleasure, it's, it's just the nature of things. But when we, when the nature of things is there's a, a pain in our neck, or our back, and we glom onto it, and we think, oh, that's a real thing, oh, that's, a, that's, that's me, that's, that's the way it is, oh, it's a hard knife that's stabbing into my back, and oh, I can't stand it, and I've got to get away from here, and, you know, geez. We can look in pain and see pain, too, flickers. Pain, too, is not constant. Pain, too, has a vibration in it. So to actually begin to look into things and to see their spaciousness, their transparency, is one of the elements of freedom. Our stories often are not spacious and transparent. Our stories just repeat the same thing over and over and over and over and over again. We think they're true. Now, as we are sitting, same practice. This is not a different practice. Same practice that you have been doing. Same practice. As you do that same practice and the mind becomes calm, by attending to the same practice with determination, with, with interest, with curiosity, as the mind becomes calm, as we inhabit the body, as we rest in the nature of this body as lighter and more spacious. And as we watch even thoughts come out of nowhere, we actually can see that in one sense we're not in control. There is no owner. There's nobody in charge. Things just changing, just changing, just changing, just changing, just changing. And in a way, when we can get a glimpse of that, we're not in control of the weather, or the color of things, or how other people move. We're not in control of even our own breath and our heart pounding. They're just experiences that are continuing to fulminate, to, to emerge, to burgeon from great mystery, from emptiness. So we can relax. Breath will take care of itself. We can relax. I was noticing during lunch, you know, it's just like watching your, your mandible masticate, uh, watching your, yourself chew. You know, 
You just watch it chew. It just it sits there and, you know, you stick something in it and it just automatically does this. You have nothing to do with it. You just sit there and watch it. You, you, you might be able to slow it down or speed it up a little bit, maybe. But it's on its own. Yeah. So to, to see that things are of their own accord, flowing, arriving, arising, disappearing. Nothing is fixed. We are in a river of emerging, shaping life. And our particular river is our particular karma, you know, the overt shape of our body and the way our mind works and all that stuff. And our job is to flow to, to swim in the river, to take a canoe and travel skillfully, to surf. But that's a whole different level of things. Now, so again, all the same practice. Just when the mind stops, or eventually the mind actually stops, then a whole different element is revealed. But that is really hard, as we all know. The stream of thought is so compelling, and we have put so much time and energy into it, or maybe the stream of music, maybe the stream of images, so compelling. So how do we disengage from it? There is the experience of willpower, which works to a certain degree. I'm determined to do this. But if we're really interested in all that thought, in the thoughts, if we're really interested in that phenomena, then of course we just keep going back and back there. So boredom with our own thinking is actually a useful tool. You know, how many times have we thought the same old thing over and over again? How many times have we gone over same story hoping that we'll have some brand new insight which will free us. You know, it's, it's quite boring, one, le one level. Or we begin to actually see that the, the solution to our problem is not using the mind in that way. Sometimes it is, but that's not the function of Sashin. The solution to our problem is not following this train of effervescent phenomena, but coming back to the reality of this moment, the reality of this ephemeral body breathing. When we're interested in something, of course, the mind runs off in that direction. So again, as you do the practice you're doing, knowing there is no better practice, knowing that you cannot think yourself out of suffering, knowing that there's no easier practice, then we can use our attention 
to come back to the basic practice that we're doing and, and hold it, rest in it, be engaged, be mindful. Rest in our whole body as one, not me and, not me and my pain, me and my story, me and my one, one whole thing. So, we use the practice you're using, begin to stabilize the mind. As we stabilize the mind, the mind that fragments and sees things in small ways begins to relax, and we begin to actually see the whole, begins to reveal itself to us, because it's always there, we just have, have all these filters. And we begin to reveal the whole, we begin to see that I, I, this I, this, this person is right here, body and mind, one thing, not two things, whole, complete, just as it is, our particular unique karmic blossom. But then, if we keep practicing and we don't just get lost again, you know, which we, we will, we do get lost in thought, but if we begin to learn to come back and not to continually be lost in thought, then the next place that opens up from exactly the practice that you're doing is that we begin to have a, an experience of what's inside and what's outside are not two things. That the seer and what's seen are not two things, are one. It's a, a natural evolution because that's the, the nature of things. And when we stop being obsessed with our small-minded opinion and view, the nature of things reveals itself. We are all whole and complete. And we in the world are one seamless body. And as soon as we start thinking, oh, I got that, oh, I understand that, oh, then we've lost it. So learning to ride experience without the commentator taking over, without buying the judgment that it's making, part of practice. One of the foundations of that is complete acceptance. This, this is the way it is. This is the way it is. When I stop fighting with reality, I can relax. There's one more element of Sashin practice that is, I think, worth mentioning, and that is Sanzen, face-to-face -face meeting with a teacher. Now, it's been an integral part of Zen practice for the last 1,500 years. And one of the things that makes the, the Zen tradition, at least certainly contemporary and perhaps for millennia, different than some of the other Buddhist traditions is there are Buddhist traditions that just keep throwing out lots of seeds, lots of seeds, lots of teachings, lots of seeds. And then people can pick them up and run with them. Or teachings that deal with the reenactment of the cosmic um, movement, the cosmic forces, or the rituals that people go through. But the Zen tradition has, has 
had face-to-face teaching. And, you know, when we have a very small group, that's very easy. When we have a large group, we have to do some struggling with it. Let me talk about that face-to-face thing. First off, many people get anxious. Meeting somebody directly, looking eye to eye, just sitting there without the social conventions. It's anxiety producing because we rely so much on our social conventions. But to be willing to be seen and to see in that way is part of, of a heart to heart connection, part of a vital transmission of practice. Secondly, it's vital, it's very important that this process have a really good, solid, ethical foundation to it. So it's not about manipulating anybody or convincing anybody. It's about a healthy relationship that deals with the the intimate depths of the spiritual practice. It's 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 a relationship of mutual learning. So just as some of you don't have a clue who Gisei and I are, other than when we give talks and run around sometimes. As we meet in Sanzen, we begin to get to know each other, begin to understand the texture and the flavor of each person, each person's particular constitution, each person's particular qualities, and do our best to work and help you grow with your particular karmic bundle. It's a mutual learning. The Buddha actually says, you never know somebody until you've you know, seen them from the front and the back, until you've lived with them, until you, it takes a year, and sometimes much longer, to actually get to know the fiber of someone, to see how they deal with crises, to see how they deal with challenges, to see how they deal with depression and despair, to see, to see what their, their fiber is. It takes, takes time. The same is true with a teacher. Just because somebody's sitting in this role is no reason to say, oh, I trust you or I like you. But people have to reveal themselves. And that revealing ourselves, we reveal ourselves first to ourselves, and then we begin revealing ourselves to others, and then we begin revealing ourselves to the world. And then as we reveal our particular strengths, our particular insight, our particular wisdom to the world, then we're offering the world something that it needs. We're offering an essential quality that only we can offer. And that has to come from our genuine depths. So Sanzen is sometimes guiding. So I've been practicing for 50 years and lots and lots of long retreats with different teachers. So because I've had certain experience with all kinds of states of mind and all kinds of things, I can kind of respond to people as they come in with their particular issues. Because, you know, we all do the same stories over and over again. And so sometimes as you're in the teacher's seat, 
you see somebody wandering off to the left, and you say, hey, go back to the right, and you see somebody wandering off to the right, and you say, oh, go back to the left, and you see somebody sitting down on the path and falling asleep, and you say, you know, get up, get moving, and you see somebody who is um, straining too hard, and you say, eh, let's, let's breathe a little more slowly, and, and you, you help to work with somebody with their particular karmic constitution. You know, best you can. Everything's unskillful. Everything's imperfect. But we often get crazy ideas in our mind about who we are and what practice is, and until they're actually poked a little bit, we don't see. So there are different traditions of Sanzen. So with some people, you know, you go in and it's a meeting and you talk and you have more casual conversation about the nature of your practice. With Harada Roshi at uh, Sogenji, which, whom I went to session with for 25 years, there sometimes you'd have four sons in the day. And you would walk in with your koan, and you'd do your bows, and you'd have to say, my koan is, and then you have to give the demonstration. And then you give the demonstration, he gives a response, and you're out. And there, the issue is, can you present the koan wholeheartedly, because practice is not a matter of something to do with the mind. Practice is a full-body thing, and especially working on koans, it's a full-body experience. And so, just to reveal the essence of the koan, the essence of you, and how those two come together, is one kind of sanzen. We don't tend to do that. We don't do that here. But sometimes, with those very dramatic sanzens, and people are working on something I've, I've been thrown into Sanzen, you know, don't want to go and somebody picked me up and took me in. <laughs> because what are we facing? We're facing ourselves. We're facing our own resistance. But we don't do that here either. You know? Maybe if Kise were bigger and stronger, we might try it, you know. But. And sometimes we come with, with these meetings and we, there's hopefully some inspiration, some encouragement, perhaps some, some guidance, sometimes just listening, sometimes just sitting in mutual oneness. But whatever you bring in is what the teacher responds to. So if somebody comes in and does their bows and says, I don't know what practice is, and they come in with confusion, then of course you try to meet their confusion. And then, you know, you say, well, why don't you try this practice? And they say, okay. They go out, they forget that practice, they come back next time, say, I'm not really sure what I'm doing anymore. You give them another practice. Before they know it, they've got a whole collection of practices that they're not doing. <laughs> you know? So it's really good to take this primary practice that you have and to come in and say, my practice is... If you're working on a koan, you repeat the koan and give the answer. If you're working on breath, you say, my practice is. And then you talk about or express what your experience is. Now, it, slide, it can slide over into judgment evaluation. But we keep saying, don't judge and don't evaluate. And the teacher's job is not to judge or evaluate. That's my job is not to do that. And your job is not to do that. 
So that judging and evaluating and trying to shape something so that we get the right response that we think we want is not helpful. Stay with one practice. There is nothing better. Come in, do your vows, state your practice. What's your experience? Whatever response there is. And then you apply. You apply the suggestions, recommendations, feedback to the same practice, to deepen that same practice. Each practice can, is, can lead certainly these basic practices to a basic fundamental place of liberation. And then there are other practices that refine that in different ways. To work on koans, you have to, to really work on koans. You've got there's the basic breakthrough koans, which really open us up to the oneness of all things. But then there are koans that really work on how do we refine that understanding. So if anything I said in this particular talk was helpful, please you know, use it. And if it wasn't helpful, forget it. You don't feel like it, did, it, it touched you, then don't worry about it. Because each talk, there may only be one or two things that actually really hit us. Pay attention. Pay attention. Pay attention. <laughs>